We've all had the thought of leaving it all behind. Loading up the car, hitting the highway, and never looking back. We'd go to some far-flung destination that our neighbors had never heard of. We'd meet new people and make new friends along the way. This trip wouldn't be like the others, no. It would be no spring break getaway to the beach. This time, we would find real adventure. But some of us never make that trip, do we? Today's guest did. A decade ago, he traveled more than 5,000 miles from Austria to Tajikistan as a guinea pig for the first ever Central Asia Rally. And like all true adventures, the trip did not go as planned. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, freelance journalist for outlets like National Geographic, Discovery Channel, uh, sometime HGTV if they rip my fingernails off. Uh, today's guest is a travel writer whose work has been featured in Nat Geo Traveler, Outside Magazine, Sunday Times, and the big daddy of them all, the New York Times. In the course of his career, he's traveled to all seven continents, and he also shares a healthy loathing for listicles with this podcast host. You can catch him on Instagram at travel underscore journo. His name is Jamie Lafferty. He joins us now. Jamie, hi. Hello. How you doing? Uh, fantastic, man. You come to us uh, all the way from Scotland. How are things over there? They are dark and cold and largely inhospitable. I mean, not, not the people, the weather. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that sounds about normal for the winter in Scotland, yeah? Yeah, man. It, it's uh, it's something, um, for a time I lived abroad and I didn't come home for, for nine months. And the first time I did, I had forgotten about these sort of five-hour days. Somehow my mind had deleted that particular trauma. And the first <laughs> time I had to live through it again, I was like, oh, shit, this is not good. So, yeah, you, you, you find ways to uh, coping mechanisms. One of mine is to just travel elsewhere. Yeah, uh, same here, although we get sunlight plenty in the winter. Uh, the summer times are like super duper hot. So I try to leave in August and go to like another hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good plan. Growing up in Scotland, um, the first time you leave home in the winter and you realize that days are longer than five hours, what is that like? <laughs> great, great. I mean, it's pretty much the only reason I do the job. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I mean, actually, the first time I remember being surprised about it wasn't in winter. It was it was the other way around. Was when I um, I came. I'd been living in in the UAE in, in Dubai, and I came back, and it was the middle of summer. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my friends. I hadn't seen them for eight or nine months, and I was like super excited. 
and chatting, chatting. And then I was like, right, well, we should probably go and get some dinner now then. And they were like, what time do you think it is? And I was like, like 6.30, 7. And they were like, it's 10.30 in the evening. My, <laughs> I just have forgotten that we have on the flip side, we have these 20 hour days in summer and actually you can get loads done and it's much better then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One thing I love about going in, in that part of the world is uh, the lighting for photography is for some reason phenomenal. Like 90% of the time the sun is out. Yeah, I mean, it can, it can be. I um, I think probably some of the best best photographies when you get these, when it's super windy and um, you the clouds part just for a second and you get these laser beams like passing through over the countryside that's always a, a winner you, you can sort that's the those are the visit scotland official tourist shots you know yeah right and then you go and it's just dark and rainy so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um tell me a little bit before we get into today's incredible journey tell me a little bit about why you wanted to be a travel writer um i didn't importantly uh it was an accident and um yeah, I mean, I I had been an arts and culture writer. That was how my my break into journalism happened for mm. a newspaper here in in Glasgow, and uh, it it was kind of um, weird. Like I was very junior. Like I was only like twenty. I think I was twenty three. And somebody from from the magazine came over and said, "Would you uh, Would you like to go to Israel?" And I said, "Well, theoretically, yes, but I can't afford it." And they were like what are you talking about? And I was like, well, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And uh, they basically wanted somebody to go out on assignment to cover this interpretive dance festival in the desert. And uh, I went and my tiny mind was blown into a million little pieces. Like I was like, oh, this is incredible. They didn't even, uh, what? I don't have to buy the drinks. This is my goodness. What is happening here? Yeah. Uh, and then I got sent on another one to Norway and then basically this this job in Dubai came up working for an in-flight magazine. Um, and I didn't even know it was an in-flight magazine when I applied. I thought it was just a, a general features writer's job. Uh-huh. I wanted a full-time contract. Um, and so for a couple of years, then I, I ended up out on a, working for an airlines magazine and accidentally by that stage had become specialized in travel. Um, and And yeah, like it's one of those things that I feel bad because I, <laughs> I've spoken to other travel writers and you know, you have this, you know, you show me yours, I'll show you mine exchange yeah. of how you got into the business. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, well, yeah, you know, I just like, I, I grew up wanting to be a travel writer and, you know, it's, I worked, I worked so hard to, to get here. And then they asked me and I'm like, I don't know. It's mind, mind blowing. Um, yeah. I kind of stumbled into it too, because in the same way as you, like, I didn't know that was a job. Mm. Um, in the States, we, we had like, the Anthony Bourdain's of the world, but I just thought like that's one guy. It's like this one guy gets to travel the world and he's the guy, the one person <laughs> that can go do that. I'm like, yep. I better go do something else. So I tried to be an Egyptologist and uh, that went to shit pretty quick. So, <laughs> so he was a, he was a big fan of Glasgow, Anthony Bourdain. He loved it yeah. here. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how uh, how sweary I can be, but it is a quote that Anthony Bourdain said. So, so uh, he said, uh, I, "I love Glasgow. I've been to um, many. I've, I've had my ass kicked in many cities around the world, but I'd only got off the train in Glasgow when somebody called me a cunt." <laughs> yeah, I think there's this episode where they do get in a bar fight, like straight up, like in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he uh, he he really he seemed to like it here a lot. You know, um, he drank at a pub that's just. Um, 
like a hundred yards from 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 my house for for his parts unknown series. He was he was uh, drinking in there. So um, yeah, yeah, he he seemed to appreciate the the strange uh, violent magnetism of, of this city. I like that city a lot, um, and it's a shame that Tony didn't get a chance to come to Memphis because for me, I see a lot of parallels uh, with the two. I mean, you've got like the sort of the glitzy, glamoury city nearby um, where all the fancy posh people go. And then you got the like more real down to earth, rough and tumble place, you know, not far down yeah, the yeah. road with with a lot of cultural history, music history and stuff like that. So, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I love Glasgow. It's a really cool place. But let's get into today's episode because it's a Get Lost podcast and we do want to go get lost. So, Jamie, you had an opportunity in your travel writing career to go to a thing called the Central Asia Rally. What is that and where is that? Well, for, first of all, um, it was a funny, it was a funny, funny way that I, that I even heard about it. I mean, I, I basically didn't hear about it. Um, and I had been uh, pitching stories around, this was not long after I had um, gone freelance having worked at that, that strange job in Dubai. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know what I was doing as a freelancer. Um, some of my editors will tell you that I still don't, <laughs> but at that time I really was a total novice and I had been pitching to the guardian in particular, cause that was the paper I read. I really wanted them to give me a chance, you know, yeah. and, um, it was so strange because they said, oh, we, not, we like your writing. We just need a story for you and so on. And then they, um, the thing I liken it to is like, I was like outside on a cold night, knocking at the window for about six months and being ignored. And then out of nowhere, uh, the editor, travel editor, Gemma Bose was at the time. She said, would you like to do this story for us? Uh, I've been, I've been sent this press release. And it was like, instead of being outside in the cold, it was like, come on, take a seat by the fire. Yeah. This, is, this is your time to shine. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's funny because that was my first big story for any uh, national newspaper. And oh, wow. I really thought that they would all be like this from now on. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I'm relieved they weren't because I would probably be dead by now. But but <laughs> but they were. They were the, the thing is that with the, so much of the business is is not travel writing. It's it's covering tourism. You know, you're 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 essentially relaying uh, replicable tourist experiences. But this, although I was doing that, you know, you can still book the Central Asia Rally if you want to. Mm -hmm. Although I was doing that, so many things went to shit that it remains the purest example of genuine travel writing that I've ever had the privilege really to do. Um, but to, to give you the skeleton of it, uh, just quickly, the idea was quite simple that you, you travel to Budapest in Hungary, mm -hmm. you get a secondhand car. Some of them were many more hands than second an old car. <laughs> and you, you drive it East, uh, all the way to the Eastern, border of Tajikistan on the border with China. And then you U-turn and you come back to Dushanbe, which is the capital of Tajikistan. And then you sell it at a secondhand market, basically. And the idea is that it's a one-way trip for the car, yeah. but hopefully not for the participants. This is like an episode of Top Gear. Kind of with slightly fewer wankers. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So what is that like? Uh, uh, how many kilometers is that journey? Um, I think if, if I remember correctly, I, th I think it was about 4,000 miles, which would be about 7,000 kilometers. Yeah. 
or maybe I would need to double check, but it was it was the thing is that these days they've completely changed the, the route because um because, <laughs> because of the shit that happened on your trip. I mean, basically, yes, like to- totally. Uh, everything went, went so badly. They were like, yeah, we need to skip out a lot of this stuff. Also, um, on our original plan, we the idea was to drive through Ukraine and into Russia, and that border is less flexible these days. Uh, yeah, it does seem that way just based on the headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so walk us through it. Let's let's pretend like we're sitting around a campfire uh, somewhere, or in your case, maybe it's a pub. A yeah. pub with a big fireplace. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Walk us through the story and just paint the scene, man, because that's that's what you're so good at. Well, thank you. Um, so basically, I, I flew to um, flew to Budapest, having having never been there before. So I had a couple of days to sort of try and orientate myself in the city and mm-hmm. take a couple of deep breaths because this was me representing the Guardian and, and going out for the first time. Um, I think I was about, uh, well, in fact, I know I was 28, so not super young, but young, felt very much like a novice. And yeah, you're I really young in your mind. Yeah, 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 totally. Like, and, and not, I, I guess I'm more confident now, I would, I would hope so. Um, but I, I went to, it was just a, a dusty car park on the edge of the town to, to meet all the rally participants. Um, and I, it was clear early on that I would be riding with two of the organizers. Um, their names were Attila and Gabor. That makes um, sense. Yep. It was quite handy because there was another team with another Attila and another Gabor. And there were also two Portuguese teams. On one Portuguese team, this is all true, two of the guys were called Miguel. And on the other one, the two guys were called Joao. So you only <laughs> really you need to learn just four names for eight people. It was a really handy uh, system. I wish yeah. more people doubled up like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and we basically, the, the first thing to do was uh, understand that we were not driving in convoy. We were to we had checkpoints to get to at the end of the day, and the accommodation was booked uh, in advance. Mm-hmm. And so the first plan was to stock up at a huge supermarket, and then drive north to the Ukrainian border. And our first night was to be spent maybe hundred miles inside Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, the plan then, if you, if you visualize it, was to go around the north coast of the Black Sea into Russia. Russia into Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and then Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. We had to get all these visas in advance. Thankfully, some of that has changed now for a lot of the stands. You can, you can apply electronically. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, it was all go to the embassy in person, um, you know, pay extra money to get it done faster. Uh, I guess that, that was a, a sign of the corruption to come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so there's um, a lot of legwork even before you get there. Oh, so much, so much. And like I say, some of these countries now have, have softened softened that and, and made it a little bit uh, more accessible. Um, I mean, even before, the, unfortunately now, I guess, with the pandemic especially, nobody's going to be visiting these countries at all. Yeah. But but a couple of years ago, they were starting to have an idea that, that you know, as well as being part of the Silk Road and everything, these countries are, are some of the few ones that haven't really adjusted for, for mass tourism or, or Western tourism. And so, although the major cities are UNESCO World Heritage Sites and so on, they don't actually get big numbers of tourists. Right. Um, That's so, so back appealing, to, though. Yeah, so go on. Oh, man, massively, massively so. Like, And and that was part of the draw. Like, I, I don't mind admitting a lot of the time I'm a, a total parachute journalist. journalist you know, I, I get sent in and I know nothing ahead of time and hopefully come out having learned quite a bit. Um, and this was a chance to go to places that, like, I, pre, prior to the rally, would have struggled to identify on a, on a map that wasn't, sure. you know, marked. Um, yeah. 
But the, the first stage seemed simpler. You know, the first stage seemed like, okay, well, we drive from Budapest to near Kiev. Mm-hmm. That seemed like it's achievable. Mm-hmm. Day one, after three hours of driving, we get to the border, we realize, no, it's not, it's not possible. <laughs> We've got immediate problems. And the thing was that these, these cars had specific uh, number plates, uh-huh. which showed them as being exported. Mm-hmm. And the Ukrainian border guards said something along the lines of, uh, we don't know that you're not going to sell these cars in Ukraine. And we tried to show them paperwork, which proved that we had visas for Russia and all these countries later in the itinerary. Yeah, but logically. They were logically, yeah. And then they were like, well, you know, we need some insurance for this. Uh, can you pay us thousands <laughs> <laughs> of euros per vehicle? But it's just it's just the deposit. And when you get to the other side of the country, entirely separate border guards will definitely give you the money back. Uh, yeah, we, that's how that works. <laughs> that's <it. laughs> we said, no, no, we, we're not going to do that. Um, but we said no, and we tried to negotiate, and it took about six hours, and we did not move. And those guys, um, I mean, it wasn't much of a bartering system. They just said no. That was that was the price. And you're just there, business. like trying to figure out what where to go. Yeah, well, like, what what are the alternatives? Um, I actually couldn't believe. I, I thought maybe we would pay them off, but it would be like a lower amount. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it was totally non-negotiable. Uh, and so f- within um, within about five hours of starting, the entire itinerary had to be thrown in the bin. <laughs> And, uh, wow. in, in the crash, sorry, and uh, and get ready to uh, get ready to come up, draw an entirely new plan, and and each team sort of had the, a choice. You know, where where would they? How are they going to adapt their route? Um, the thing was that because of those visas that I mentioned, you know, back then if you said you're going to be in Russia on the on the twenty second, mm-hmm. you cannot arrive on the twenty third because your visa says you were there from the twenty second. So if we were going to adapt the route. And lengthen it, we had to drive more in order to st- still hit the same marks. So you're going to have to do long, long nights to get to Russia on the 22nd. Yep, yep. And so we basically retreated to a, a random guest house in northern Hungary and sort of got a map out and like a war room and discussed what was going to what everyone was going to do. And is this teams- all of the rally drivers, or is this just like you and then Attila and the? And Gabor, no, no. Yeah, um, at that at that point, it was uh, it was all the teams, but um, we didn't really. There was not really consensus. Um, Hungarians are wonderful people, wonderful people. They're also passionate people, and in the heat of an argument, as I witnessed, quite unreasonable, quite often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure they get along like splendidly with Ukrainians anyway. So yeah. <laughs> oh man, as as I found out, because our our team's plan was okay. We're just going to go around the other side of the Black Sea. So we're going to cut through all of Romania, Bulgaria, the north coast of Turkey, then up through Georgia, and then hit into Russia then. Yeah, cool. And that's going to be the plan. Um, but driving through Eastern Europe with Hungary, Hungarians is quite an interesting business because a huge chunk of it used to be Hungary. Right, yeah. Um, and in the eyes of some Hungarians, kind of still is. <laughs> uh, yeah, because that, that would include like a lot of Romania and all that, right? Oh, sure, yeah. man. Like a, a massive chunk of R- Romania. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they were saying it mostly, I think, I hope it was mostly tongue in cheek, but um, 
they they would name loudly every time we went through a town that had a Hungarian name that was you know oh, oh, well, yeah, they, of they, course. they used part of Hungary and um I, they, they were uh, you know those guys were fun but they they those wounds I suppose uh, are, are still fairly raw to some of them you know none of their families had left Hungary so they they basically I actually learned a lot about Hungarian history there you know they had they were invaded by the Nazis, kicked them out, and got immediately uh, invaded by the communists. So they had a, they had a pretty rough, uh, and that was from having been one of the richest, largest empires in the world. So yeah. it was a rapid decline for Hungarians. And so I'm not saying mm. that I agree with everything that they said at all, but you, I can understand at least where there would be some um, strange bitterness or hangover from that uh, that period. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's an incredible position for a, a wealthy, like prosperous nation to be in all of a sudden you know you're a player on the world stage and then all of a sudden you're not yeah and massive massive innovators as well like um a very boring fact i can tell you very quickly about budapest is that it has the second oldest underground station in the world uh, route in the world so london was first then budapest then uh here in glasgow we were number three yeah Um, so and and so that would have been going around uh right around the probably before the turn of the 19th 20th century yeah, 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 yeah. They 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 built it to um, mark the thousand year anniversary of the arrival of the Magyars. Um, so they rushed it and they got it done, and it was um, it still works today. You can still go on it. So, wow. Yeah. So prior yeah. to pre- World War One, they were doing all that, and then by the end of World War Two comes around, and you're just a vast. Yeah, they, they they picked pretty poorly on both sides of both wars. Um, so so it went badly for for Hungary, very badly, and. Um, and yeah, I mean, as we, so we basically at this guest house um, over a bottle of Palinka, which I would never recommend to anyone at any time, but especially at the end of a hard day of um, rejection from Hungarian, uh, sorry, Ukrainian border guards. Sure. And what does that uh, taste we, like? Um, punch in the face mixed with battery acid, I would say. Lovely. All right. It's, it's, yeah, it is really, it's really bad. Like, I mean, look, I guess some people, a lot of people don't like whiskey which is the national drink of my country. Mm-hmm. But Palinka definitely is, I would say, objectively worse. Um, it's it's like a sort of hard, I think it's made from grapes. Uh, it's not good. Yeah. Sounds kind of um, like rakia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we drove, I mean, the drive, the first stop we were going to make in order to make up our time, we had to drive nonstop to Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And that took... I think around 21 hours of non-stop driving. Oh my God. I mean, stopping for meals, stopping for the toilet and yeah. stopping for Attila to have a smoke, Yeah. but no overnighting anywhere. Um, and it was decided quite early on um, that Gabor and Attila would rotate the driving. For some reason, they didn't, they did not want me behind the wheel. I don't understand that, but all right. Yeah, I mean, it was a relief for me. I mean, I could keep reading in the back and um, not be responsible for any crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took it took twenty one hours to get through um, through through Romania and then through Bulgaria. And I just I I mean I remember it being incredibly rainy. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, a guard on a river in Bulgaria drawing a gun because he thought that we were being too fast. Um, <laughs> wow, it was it was very weird. Um, but while a lot weirder things were to happen, uh, so so we pushed on and got to Istanbul um, around eight o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and we just got any old guest house. It was quite close to the central bus station. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked at the schedule and worked out that we could afford no more than five hours sleep 
um, before we would have to be back on the road. Yeah, because my God, if you look at the map, you're just like a tiny fraction of the way to where you need to go. <laughs> yeah, because the roads, I mean, there are, there are motorways, uh, but they're not uh, that extensive. I mean, for a time in Romania, we were driving on cobbled streets. You know, there's not, you, you do not laser through. It's yeah. not like the US, but, you know, US is the best driving country in the world. You know, amazing roads everywhere, gas stations, wherever you need them. Mm -hmm. This is not the case in these parts of the world, not even not even close. You're dodging like horse and buggies and stuff. And I mean, and sometimes literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, we left uh, left Istanbul and started heading east. And actually, there were times on that drive that it was quite beautiful. You know, you're going along the shore of the Black Sea. The weather was quite nice. Turkish food is 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 kind of great. You know, even in cheap mm -hmm. places. Um, I do remember one thing about that that I I took as a bad omen. Um, and Attila was a smoker, and so periodically he would just pull over, not in a parking place. You know, just on the hard shoulder, and say, <laughs> yeah. "I'm." I'm smoking and we'd be like, Gabor and I would be like, well, we were both photographers. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll go and take some pictures then of yeah. something. Sure. Yeah. And smoking people, great photographs. <laughs> yeah. 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 A lot of atmosphere. At in the early stages. Yeah. So, uh, so we basically, um, we pulled over at this random spot on the, on the black seashore and Gabor and I walked over to the seawall and there was some funny smell and we looked over and remember we could have stopped absolutely anywhere. Yeah. On the beach were two dead and rotting dolphins. Oh no, what? Yeah man. And I was just like, I don't, I didn't know that Black Sea had dolphins for one. Yeah. Secondly, oh dear. <laughs> and thirdly, <laughs> can you put out that cigarette and can we go elsewhere? Because this smells really bad. Yeah. And also, like you said, what a great omen. <laughs> yep. Um, so we pushed on through Turkey and then finally we got to the border with, with Georgia. And it was an incredibly hot day and um, things were quite tense at the border or just a mess, like cars trying to overtake each other. You know, there was like three lanes leading into one, mm -hmm. people pushing towards the border, people getting out of the cars and shouting at each other. We had been driving for about 16 hours at this point. And we were all just tired, like super tired. And um, I remember, because I was thinking about writing a book about this entire rally mess. And the title of it was came from this quote from Gabor. Uh, was he, he looked wearily over his shoulder at me and said, we, <laughs> we came here as men and we leave as baboons. <laughs> we leave as baboons was going to be the name of, was going to be the name of the book. Um, and yeah, there was a, you know, a lot of shouting, a police officer waving his gun around, trying to get people to calm down. Unsurprisingly, guns don't calm people down. Yeah. They tend to make people more amped up. And um, finally, weird thing. Weird thing. <laughs> we crossed the border into Georgia, drove for another few hours and got to their capital, Tbilisi, which I've heard is a beautiful capital and a, a lovely sort of medieval city. I have a Georgian friend who has always talked it up so much that I've always really loved to We'd love to see more of it. But unfortunately, because of our scheduling, we had just another five hours to sleep in a hostel. So you roll into Tbilisi, which, yeah, you're right, is supposed to be beautiful. But is it nighttime at this point? Yeah, it's, so it's dark. We can't even see any of it. Attila has phoned the guy that he knows to say, have you got spare beds? Um, we, we, we just have got there. Um, 
basically uh, a cup of tea and some bread in the morning. And then we, again, because the Russian visa situation and then the Kazakh visa after that, we have to just get going. So um, the real, the real time, like sensitive thing about this rally is less, let's win the rally and more like we have all these visas that are causing a major problem. Absolutely. And, and I should just say very, very clearly, there isn't actually a racing element to this rally. It's more of a tour rather than um, the idea of a rally as, as in being competitive. Oh, so you are just swearing at like Miguel and Miguel, those bastards. <laughs> I mean, I did later, but for an entirely different reason. Okay. <laughs> Continue on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we um, we then leave and head north, and we have to drive uh, drive over the Caucasus Mountains, basically. And it's one of those times that even through this growing, uh, gnawing fatigue, uh, mm-hmm. you can see it's beautiful. Like it is so nice up there, and. Um, it was. This was in late May, so the thaw had was at least underway, but there was still snow-capped mountains and everything. Gorgeous valleys. You know, we were driving a, a 20-year-old Nissan Vanette, uh, which had reinforced tires and a diesel engine, and it didn't sound too happy going up those mountains, but it made it. And we would pull over occasionally, and just and the photos were great. It was beautiful. Um, I remember on top of some, like, quite abrasive mountain pass we we met the two miguels actually and they were driving a, a 25 year old uh volkswagen passat estate um that's positively was, luxurious oh oh amazing amazing um later in the rally much later in the rally uh, in tajikistan they got offered a bag of rubies for that car <laughs> what <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So apparently, red cars are quite prestigious in uh, in um, Tajikistan. It's a great and travel they, tip. Oh man! And they had uh, they had burst their tire for like the fifth time, and they were in a village, but they had no money left. Mm-hmm. So they were trading their T-shirts to get a new tire. And the guy said, "Look, I can stop all this. I'll give you a bag of rubies for the car." But they still had five hundred miles to go, and they weren't sure if they could get a ride all the way back to the capital. And also, they didn't know if the rubies were uh, real. So they they had to decline. Personally, I would have taken the rubies. I think I, think would, I would have too. Because who just <laughs> has a bag of rubies? Well, and the, the, it was a mining area, you know. So I mean, the thing was that car was so fucked at that point that even if it was a bag of glass, it would have been worth more than the shitty car. <laughs> yeah, I think they messed up. They yeah, yeah me, too, me too. So you're in the Caucasus at this this mountain pass, and there's the Miguel's and the Miguel's and the red Volkswagen. Yeah, yeah. And we're uh, happy to see them. And like, we've asked them because we didn't see them in Tbilisi. You know, it's kind of a coincidence that we bumped into them up there and they're doing OK. Uh, one of them's still wearing shorts. One of them is visibly drunk. And uh, <laughs> we're like, OK, we're like, we'll, we'll we're going to head to Vladikavkaz, which is the first major city in southern Russia in that in that little um, squeezed bit between um, the, the two seas, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Mm. And we go down like we sort of separate because the pace of the vehicles is quite different and um we go through the russian border it's you know immediately hostile and but professional in the end you know we don't get asked about the um the number plates or anything and so we we slide through and we we get to vladikavkaz and it is immediately horrible like <laughs> whether it's the, the weather is uh, like just ugly humid um, we get pulled over by the police and asked for a bribe because Gabor is not wearing his seatbelt while driving. Um, we at one point uh, turn a corner and a guy like does this insanely dangerous move up the inside 
And like I said, Hungarians are quite passionate people and Gabor shouts at him out the window. Uh, his response was to try and ram us off the road. Uh, and we had to uh, avoid that and take a just a turn down a side street and hope he didn't follow us. Oh my God, and um, Gabor's not wearing his seatbelt. I know, I know. Um, and it was, the food was absolutely awful. Everything was everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. Um, We're not going to be invited to Russia for free after this. Oh man! So let me just tell you a, a very quick story. Um, years later, uh, I was in the U.S. on a road trip around Texas, and a friend of mine was editing the travel section at the Independent newspaper, mm -hmm. and she emailed and said, "Look, I hate to do this, but..." Um, we don't have any money for this feature, but we just want like, can we just give us two lines on the unfriendliest place you've ever been? That's and I said, well, cool, easy, it's Vladi Kavkaz. So I just, I just like, I was in a car, I just wrote out my phone, like two sentences about why Vladi Kavkaz was, in my opinion, a shithole. Yeah. And I merrily went to bed and woke up the next morning and all my social media accounts were awash oh, no. with Russian stuff. Oh no. I'm tagged in pictures with Cyrillic writing, I don't know what the fuck happened. Basically, what had happened was this young, quite beautiful, and very professional uh, female Russian journalist had, has Google alerts set up for any time that Vladikavkaz is mentioned in the foreign press. Mm -hmm. So when it has come up on a listicle of the most unfriendly places on earth, <laughs> that, is a, that is a gift of a news story for her. So by the time I'd woken up on Texas time, mm -hmm. She had gone and got quotes from the mayor oh, no. <laughs> and and got me an invite back to Vladikavkaz. And I hope that this was a slight misunderstanding or mistranslation rather, but it, I remember it sounding quite unfortunate because it said, Jamie should come back to Vladikavkaz so we can change his mind. Oh, that sounds really threatening. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I like that at all. I had visions of, of you know, in Clockwork Orange where he's strapped to the seat with his eyes <laughs> forced open. Yeah. Uh, yes. I um, I have not taken up that invite to go back to Vladikavkaz. Did you know you can get a three-star hotel there tonight for $21? That seems overpriced to me. <laughs> Crap. Mm. Now we are going to get invited back. They're going to change our minds. <laughs> so, but, but little did I know that Vladikavkaz is actually one of the friendlier parts of that um, region in Russia. So we, we started heading north and... Um, we would get stopped by the police very, very often for initially for made up traffic charges. And then quite clearly it was just for money. Like it was just for, for bribes and yeah. never for very much. Like, I mean, I'm talking like 10 bucks, like a sort of like embarrassingly low amount of money. It was almost like a road toll as much as anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And well, how do they know that you, oh, cause it's the plates. Because of the plates, because of the yeah. plates. Now here's a funny thing. The Hungarian language is very complicated. It is not in any way related to Russian or really any other languages apart from a little bit Estonian and Finnish. Mm -hmm. But it is really a sort of standalone thing and it sounds quite curious to my ears, but evidently to Russians as well. Mm -hmm. So after we had been uh, ripped off by enough Russian police officers, we decided to start um, a ruse of our own Okay. which was that uh, Gabor and Attila would only reply in Hungarian. <laughs> and then they would come back to me and my passport is somewhat sadly British. Yeah. But so the guys know how to ask for bribes in Russian and English. So they would look at mine and they would start to speak to me. Yeah. But I would drop what you're getting now is my international speaking voice. I would drop that and go as Glaswegian as possible. 
<laughs> and, and make it indecipherable. And honestly, I would say about 50% of the time, they would be like, well, those guys aren't speaking Russian and this clown in the back is not speaking English. And they would just wave us on. Please, please, uh, please get local real quick for us. Tell us what does this sound like? My my example sentence for it is I can you can how no but. I have no idea what you just said, man. Yeah. I can say it slower; it won't make any difference. But I can you can how no but. What the fuck? Say, <laughs> I can you can how no but means I know you cannot. Why not though? Oh yeah, see you lost me totally. That's yeah, yeah. Funny. So that that sort of that sort of awful. Uh, banter would be what I would bring out for these um, armed Russian guards, <laughs> and uh, and thankfully uh, it worked sometimes. Um, but yeah, it was it was like a, it was a hostile place. It was quite intimidating, and um, you know, you, it's just a shame to see. I mean, if, for us, it was there was a bit of novelty about it yeah. in that we were um, we knew we were passing through. Yeah, yeah. It was so quite it's, kind of a, it's a game. It's a game. It's part of the journey. Yeah, it's, yeah you know, and like with, with not that we're wealthy, but like throwing a few bucks around here and there, like it's not the end of the world. But sure. to see like, you know, normal Russians having to do that every day, I mean, imagine how wearying that would be all the time. You just want to go out to, this, to shop for your family yeah. and you've got to put up with that. Like, yeah, it, was, it wasn't great. Um, I then remember we came to uh, a road sign which had no good options. Uh, to the left was Beslan. Um, and I don't know, I mean, Beslan is, is famous really only for one thing, which is, um, or infamous rather, for an absolutely horrific uh, hostage situation. I think it was back in 2004, a thousand people were held hostage at a kid's school. Oh um, 333 were killed. The majority of them were children. Um, it is about as bleak a place as, uh, or, or, or the memories of that are, are just, you know, it's, it's like it's like when you hear the word, the name Columbine, you don't think, yeah. oh, I wonder what's Columbine. You're like, oh, I know that one thing about Columbine. Yeah. Or in Scotland, Lockerbie, where the, the um, plane came down in the late 80s, was a terrorist, a terrorist attack. There's certain places that just have that association, and Beslan, unfortunately, is, is one of them. Mm-hmm. That was to the left, and to the right was Grozny, which is, was the home of two, two Chechen wars and um, is let's, not a popular tourist destination either. Um, and we had to go through Grozny, so we started driving there and we, we got to the outskirts of the city. And the name, I remember that <laughs> the, the Hungarians thought this was very funny, that they should pose outside this enormous sign that said Grozny in, in Russian Cyrillic writing, um, so that they could send it back home to, to, you know, worry their folks, basically. Yeah, right, yeah. I shit you not, on the ground next to that sign, it was covered in bullet casings. And I was like, man, what's this? And what the, or actually what the guess was, guess was that it was a um, Chechen wedding because they celebrate by firing guns in the air. I hope so. I hope that was the case. Um, as we pushed on into the city, uh, all our GPS stopped working. <laughs> we had no guidance at all. No way. Um, and we basically got to downtown Grozny and it's, it's remarkably redeveloped because since the last Chechen war, it seems that, or it seemed to us at the time, that Moscow's policy has been to um, flood the region with money, and yeah. um, that's an easier solution than having conflict. So there was this like huge golden mosque and this amazing um, soccer stadium, and it, it actually looked quite nice in downtown Grozny, um, but it was still, I, you know, I'm, I don't get too nervous about too many things, but I didn't really feel like walking around downtown there 
Yeah. But well, when you go in and you see this golden moss, it's just towering over. There's like skyline yeah. with with lights and towers mm-hmm. and, and new buildings. And you know the history. I mean, how does that play in your mind? I mean, I guess it's one of those one of those like like I say, I used to live in Dubai, so I've seen those things be built for for vanity and for capitalism. Mm-hmm. I guess in a way, actually, it didn't seem that bad to me because I was like, well, it's been built to placate people and and um, create peace in a, in, a, in a weirdly backhanded way. Yeah. Um, like a I, I, solution, really. I, I think so. I mean, I would rather see, you know, instead of armed conflict, mm-hmm. I thought it was a pretty reasonable uh, approach. Um, but we had to we had to keep talking to locals as well because we, we had no directions and we had no map. And bear in mind, we were never fucking supposed to be in Grozny in the first place. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to be on the other side of the Black Sea and nowhere near this uh, this crazy city. Um, and we look, uh, we had nothing but um, nice, hospitable people who who told us the way out, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started driving north, and we were we were now another I don't know twenty hours since we'd left Tbilisi. Mm-hmm. We were phenomenally tired now because you're not talking about just I've stayed up late one night. It's cumulative exhaustion yeah. at this point. Night after night after night. After night, night after night after night. And I remember um, Gabor took the wheel. I sat in the front seat and Attila said he's going to sleep on, on the back seat of this um, minivan that we had. Mm-hmm. So we're driving and we're driving and I'm sort of dozing off in the front seat, cannot keep awake. Attila is complete in like in a fetal position, sleeping on, in the back, and Gabor's driving. And then there's an almighty bang, and I was like, "Oh God, we crashed!" Like you know, total rude awakening, astonished, didn't know what was happening. What was it? The motorway had ended, like abru- just stopped, and we were now on sand. <laughs> it was just like. It, wow. it wasn't like there were any signs or or it just like money's money's out or this region has, is no longer paying. Next is off-road. Just, yeah, no warning. Just go, go, go. Sent. I was going to ask because on the satellite map, I'm kind of following this journey. You go from these lush green sort of mountains and as you head north, the desert does start to creep in, creep yeah. in, creep in. So you hit, you hit desert. No, no, yeah, nothing in a, in a hurry, basically. And then we, we worked out, we like... Get, Poor Attila had flown off the back seat and was on the floor. There was a lot of uh, Hungarian swearing. Mm-hmm. We were trying to work out what was going on. We were trying to work out if there was another route as well, but this was literally the only road. So we had to plow on. And after a few hours, uh, Gabor just took his foot off the accelerator and didn't even hit the brake. He just let the car grind to a halt and just said, I can't do anymore. And I thought, well, you know, it's time to get out the Red Bull and maybe it's my turn to drive. Yeah. And Attila re- revived from the back and, and drove heroically for about five hours. The sun was coming up over the desert. I remember it actually being oddly beautiful. And then finally, finally, we arrived in Astrahan, which is sort of the easternmost uh, reaches of, of, of that part of Russia anyway. Mm-hmm. At the top, I think it's at the north of the Caspian Sea and at the end of the River Volga, maybe. I think it used to be called Volgograd, possibly. Yeah, Volga River, yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also, <laughs> this is a sad fact and I wish I didn't know it. I think it has the world's most remote McDonald's. Uh, like I think if you draw, in terms of a radius around it, there's a long way until you get to another McDonald's. I mean, and, that'd be a great story, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> well, we stopped in there because it had Wi-Fi and it had coffee. I hadn't had a coffee for days by this point. Yeah. 
And um, so that was felt miraculous somehow that we made it that far. Incidentally, if you're going to do the Central Asia Rally now, that's where it starts. It it's starts in yeah, 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 yeah. You, you get your Happy Meal, a toy, and keys to a car. Wow, that's nuts. So now they've modified the route so that you start basically like days and days and days ahead of where you guys started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you're almost starting in Asia, kind of, like yeah. rather than rather than in a, a, a big historic European capital. You, you really, really move very far away from that now. It's totally on the border. If you guys look at the map, it's north of the Caspian Sea. And, and it's right there on the border with what looks like uh, Kazakhstan. Yeah, it's Kazakhstan's right. So um, I had been to Kazakhstan once before on, on assignment, and I had been over the east side in Almaty, which is the historic capital. And the west of, of Kazakhstan is, is very different. It's, it's all desert, basically. And so we arrive at the border, um, and I remember we had to bribe the border guards there. And uh, Gabor... <laughs> Gabor is a very, very funny man. He is a good friend of mine, and mm. he, he's one of these guys. He speaks, I think, seven languages or something like that. But it has it, he's very eloquent as well. Mm-hmm. And um, they had brought some fizzy Hungarian wine, so <laughs> they definitely kept it not champagne. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they brought it for this exact purpose. When these guys were given a school shit at the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, they gave them two bottles of what they said was champagne. And we were then waved through along with the car behind us on the rally because we had bribed them with real champagne. That's what we called them. <laughs> That's and, fantastic. Yeah. And so Gabor, Gabor leaned over his shoulder and said to me, those guys think they've won, but they haven't tasted that stuff yet. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is magnificent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was—he had a real great turn of fa- phrase, and uh, you know, the, I think it was two euros per bottle of this absolute filth, like fizzy vinegar or something. You know, really bad. Yeah. But um, but it got us. It had a cork and it went pop, and so I think that was enough for these uh, these these dudes at the border. Yeah. Um, we drove on and on through a desert, just like a. The sky was the same color as the earth. It, it was miserable. There was nothing to look at. We um, there was uh, there was a dead camel at the side of the road really bloated and horrible looking finally that's that's par for the course you know you've got the the bloated dead uh, local wildlife oh man that that, that was the, that was the highlight the whole way i think this was actually around that part of kazakhstan is more where the soviets used to test nukes and stuff like maybe that's what did the camel but like it was it was a bleak place you know and we stopped for gas at one point uh, uh this fat policeman was there he was super drunk and he took a dislike to um, Attila, and was trying to fight him. Like have wow. like a fight with him. For, for he was he was drunk as a lord at the time. I, I have yeah. no idea. I mean, Attila really didn't do anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the other police officers had to come and pull the fat man away. We were like, what? What is this? Is really like grim stuff here? Probably lost his camel, man. Yeah, <laughs> he was grieving the camel. That's very possible. Um, so we. We kept going, we got to the border with Uzbekistan. You know, this is, it's the same desert, but they've just put a little um, office in the middle of this one highway that, that runs through the two. And um, we, we passed through that more or less no problem. I remember feeling very guilty because there was huge queues of locals on either side trying to get either way. Mm. And we were just waved to the front on account of being European and nothing else. 
And right. it, but it was like it was forty degrees Celsius. I, I don't know what that is in in Fahrenheit. Over a hundred, I think. Um, and these people are just standing outside with these yeah. desert winds smashing into the side of them. One hundred and four degrees for those of you in America yeah. at the moment. Man, it's really. Hot pretty hot and then so we kept going and um uzbekistan in a weird way ended up being one of my favorite countries but it it didn't start like that it started with us finally that night getting to a, a city the name of which escapes me um it has a small university in it and that was sort of where a lot of the teams re like congregated or, or happened to meet each other again Right. Some of them got there earlier, so they, they'd had to sleep. Mm-hmm. We hadn't. Um, we had to sort of liaise with a few of the others. Because remember, Gabor and Attila are two of the coordinators of this yeah. um, insanity. So they had to um, try and check on the guys um, and, and listen to some complaints. And one other Portuguese guy on another team just said, I- I'm leaving now. Like, I'm, this, I've heard this place has got an airport, and I'm flying to Moscow, and I'm flying back to Lisbon because I am, I've had enough. Did you did you get a reason why? Like, did you hear any stories from the other teams about what they had been through? So he had been taken in by a team of two Hungarian guys. Mm-hmm. I think it was actually the other Gabor and the other Attila. Yeah. <laughs> and and he had been sharing the driving with them. But you know, the extreme west of Europe, the extreme east of Europe, maybe there was some cultural clash or something. Mm-hmm. The thing was as well. I mean, remember, everyone's sleep deprived. Everyone's stressed. Everyone's getting guns waved at them by corrupt, corrupt police officers. If I had not been working in, uh, and, you know, trying to report on this, you know, nutty behavior. Yeah. For the biggest I, assignment you'd ever had at that point, too. Of course. Yeah. And, and actually, in a way, I'm like, well, I can't afford to be pissed off. Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an observer here. It's yeah. my job to, to tell this story rather than actually cry about the fact that you know, my eyes are stinging, my body aches. Sure. Yeah. So, but this, this dude was, you know, this guy's paid for the privilege to go through, to, to have this <laughs> awful sort of CIA style torture program be inflicted on him. This is a cruel just, twist of fate. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, well, fuck it. I'm going home. No, no, I'm not doing this anymore. So off he went, uh, we had to keep driving and, by the time we got to Kiva, which is a beautiful, beautiful um, Silk Road city in, in sort of southwestern Uzbekistan, mm. where there's lots of turquoise uh, pottery and ceramic work and tiles, incredibly ornate um, all around the city. It's beautiful and feels great. And But we had been driving, again, just stopping for the toilet meals and Attila smokes. We've been driving for 60 hours by that point. That's pretty bananas when you add all that up. I mean, it's a really long, long, long way. It's not good, man. And and like in the previous, in the, in the last stint before we got to Kiva, both Gabor and Attila were so tired that they, I said, look, can I just drive now, please? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, okay. And I drove for three hours across the desert and made one turn of about two degrees <laughs> and watched one small like dust devil spin across the the road but really there was nothing nothing to do like what is the road like did you actually hit pavement again or is it yeah yeah sorry i I, that's a good question yeah no so so basically east from um east from 
Astrahan, it was all pretty well paved again. Okay. Uzbekistan is, is strangely um, quite wealthy. It's got huge gas reserves. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a lot of roads, but the ones they do, at least on that stretch, were all quite well maintained. Mm -hmm. That's Well, that's a luxury, but yeah, mind-numbing. In 60 hours, like for perspective, pretty sure you could go coast to coast in the US twice doing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, man, like I was, um, there was a lot of stops for like, you know, borders and um, breaks and so on, but it was 60 hours from when we left Tbilisi to when we got to Kiva. That was that was the gap between those two places. And, and we, um, I mean, I was so tired, I was hallucinating at one point, you know, I thought I saw some wolves run across a road uh, and it, it was just shadows cast by our own um, headlights, you know. And you're having like real Hunter S. Thompson moment with yeah, minus all the shit driving through the desert, just wild animals. Minus all the fun. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Minus the drugs and not even any coffee, really. So no, 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 no. It was a, you, you know, looking back on it now, like I'm so glad I did that trip and, and had all these things. I, I, I'm 38 now and there's just no way I could, uh, I could manage it. I don't think um, it's a young, young man's game. You, yeah, I mean, there. I think now that they've softened the, the route and made it more logical, perhaps mm -hmm. it's you know be more achievable. But this was, we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants a lot and um, and guessing as we went. Yeah, and you're well, you're getting closer to the to like the turning point, really, because you're like seventy percent of the way, eighty percent of the way at this point to the Chinese border. Yeah, so that was sort of the end of the days of. Um, like debilitatingly long drives. It was not the end of the adventure by any means, but it was certainly things felt like they were a bit more in hand uh, after that. And and there was significant compensation because the three places that we stopped in Uzbekistan, which was Hiva, Bukhara, and then Samarkand, mm -hmm. were all um, beautiful and all you know nice historic cities. And we were getting some sleep at night, and the food was a little bit better and um and we just all felt a bit more a, a bit less sort of crazy through lack of sleep you know yeah and at this point you are you are on the old silk road yeah this is pure silk road stuff now so you know you've got people uh, selling dried fruits and um they're really not that used to seeing tourists we met a couple of sort of tour buses of french tourists but otherwise it was um pretty pretty cool to be somewhere where you know that like speaking English doesn't actually really help very much. Yeah, because um, usually you're right. We can kind of get by one way or another. And um, Yeah, in, in there was, so there was a funny incident, I think, going between Bukhara and Samarkand. The, the two Miguels um, who were either one or the other was always drunk. Sometimes both were. And they were like one was really small and did not really speak English. Mm -hmm. Or, or he, but he seemed to understand it, mm -hmm. and any time he was asked a question, his answer was always "Why not?" Well, and it was like, that's should, what he knows. "Should we go to uh, Grozny? Why not? Yeah. Should we keep driving? Or why not?" Like he he just that's all he would answer all the time, and it ended up being maddeningly maddeningly hard to come up with a reason to say why not. So we yeah. ended up doing a lot of dumb shit because of this little mad Portuguese bastard <laughs> because he only and who knows whether that's just his personality or like the only phrase he knows <laughs> yeah totally and the other Miguel was more uh, he spoke good English um, was also a rascal um, and they were 
on the on that day it's going between Bukhara and Samarkand they were like today you're riding with us and I was like well man you know like I don't know he was like no 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 if you want a story you come with us and oh, no. yeah and so each route we were given sort of the, the most direct way to go and then the sort of slightly more adventurous way to go yeah and so they were like we're definitely taking the more adventurous path and in their 25 year old Passat we were off-roading in a desert, the tire burst. We had to try and fix that in the middle of nowhere. We got completely lost. We had no markers, no GPS, nothing. We're going and going and going. Finally find some tarmac, follow it for a bit. It went over a train line and there was a, there was a stationary train right next to it, weirdly. So there was uh -huh. just enough room to get around it. And we went down and we got to a fence and there was two guys standing with Kalashnikovs who pointed them at us and asked what we were doing. That's the adventurous route. Absolutely, man. And so when I was with the Hungarians, Gabor could speak some rudimentary Russian. Uh -huh. He had a little bit of Russian that, so that at least in a situation like this, he could apologize, let's say. But with the two Portuguese dudes and me, we were like useless, utterly yeah. useless. Yeah, because like who speaks Portuguese? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, even 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 worse, who speaks Uzbek and uh, and and their version of Russian. So we um, basically, it turned out that we had accidentally strayed onto a, a massive gas plant, oh, and yeah. we had to stay there for three hours and wait for the shift to end for all these employees to come out, and so that one person who um, who spoke English was then put forward to us, and when we explained. Oh, then they said, what, what, what are you doing here? And we were like, oh, we've driven here from Budapest. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't reassure them that we weren't full of shit. Like it sounded so nutty to them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, they managed to give us some directions and we followed them and we got into Samarkand about 11 o'clock that night. We found one restaurant that was open. We sat down for a meal. There was a peacock, a live peacock jumping around from table to table. And I was just like, but I have no idea anymore if I'm awake if i'm making this stuff up if i'm having some if i've had a psychotic break or i'm hallucinating i, I do not know what is going on so i want to ask you a little bit about samarkand because that's a really really ancient city i mean we're mm. talking like you know seventh century bc just ancient as hell even though you grew up in europe i mean that's beyond even anything remotely resembling a building in the uk at this point yeah uh, what no, is that city like so on the fringes, quite ugly and quite Soviet. But then when you get downtown, you see these these ancient buildings. And 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 more than that, it's I mean the architecture's some of it survived, some of it hasn't. Mm -hmm. But the sort of the culture is still quite distinct there. And so I remember we you know, we didn't have that much time, unfortunately, for sort of sightseeing or doing nice things. Mm -hmm. um, right. And you know I was saying at the start that oh, hooray, I wasn't just doing tourism stuff. I was now getting to do some real life travel writing. Yeah. But at the same time, it would have been nicer to spend a little bit more time in Samarkand. But the one thing we did do was go down to the local market and it was all dried fruits that they, you know, they dried out in the desert wind and mm -hmm. stuff. People selling like hand-stitched hats and traditional Uzbek dress and so on. And of course, uh, lots of bartering and uh, negotiation. And it really felt like um, something real, you know. I don't yeah. know if, if you've ever been to the uh, Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. No, but not it, yet. But it feels like well, that, but turned up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is about the Grand Bazaar, it's it, 
the version that exists now is for cruise ship passengers. Like it's yeah. a sort of mockery of, or a cheap imitation of, of what it originally was. Yeah. You go to Central Asia and you're still seeing that stuff as or more essentially like it was and has always been, I suppose. So in general, when you meet local people there who, as you said, are not used to tourists at all, once you convey what you're actually doing, did they have a lot of feedback on that? I, I think a lot of them, though they understood the words, didn't understand the motivation. Right. <laughs> like, why would you? Why would you inconvenience yourself so so spectacularly? I, I remember one person just said, "Like, do you know about planes?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you guys should be like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> yeah, there was an alternative. Yeah. Oh my god, we made a terrible mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So let's continue on and, and and talk about the rest of this trip because we still like we're in Uzbekistan. You still got to go through Tajikistan. Okay, so I mean Tajikistan is um, I guess in, in in that was my favorite place and the real highlight of the whole trip and possibly because it's the most unknown element as well. It's a a beautiful little country that's ninety five percent mountainous. Um, wow. It it really is the the final link between the Chinese border and and what was the Soviet empire Mm -hmm. and is just absolutely extraordinary now i would you know qualify all of that by saying that the capital dushanbe is horrible um and not nice and is quite aggressive and also corrupt and you know when the wikileaks cables came out um must be 10 or 11 years ago now it revealed that it was estimated that as much as between 30 and 50 percent of the tajik economy is based on heroin which comes from Afghanistan through Tajikistan into Russia and then beyond or not. And so there is obviously a sort of systemic criminal element to the entire thing. Yeah. But none of that impacts the scenery or life in the rural areas, which thankfully, because of the rally, we got to see plenty of. And I remember the first sort of really remarkable uh, place that we stopped was Khorog, which is a, a little town in the middle of a deep valley where people have, like an extraordinary number of people have green eyes, like really emerald green eyes, like um, Sharbat Gula, the National Geographic uh, literal poster girl. Because yeah. um, she comes from Afghanistan and just on the other side of the Panj River. So the Panj River is the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. So like they would have been, she's very much from that sort of region. And yeah, Tajikistan's just north of Afghanistan. It's, it's the border country to Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, it borders a lot, a lot of different places actually, Tajikistan, and and so on the way out we sort of went through the middle of it, and then on the way back we followed that border with Afghanistan for several hundred miles. So quite a lot of the time we were driving along a road next to a river, and on the other side of the river was Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we we kept going. We went really high altitude wise. We got um, over four thousand meters. We were driving at some points, which again I'm not That's sure. Incredible. That That's incredibly high. Incredibly high, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, I mean, it's 13,000 feet. So, that, like Rocky Mountain National Park, the highest road there is is 12 something. Yeah. yeah. And so, what we, what in, the, in these old cars, you know, at times we, they were really struggling to, to deal with that altitude. I remember at one point we couldn't get up a hill in first gear. 
Um, we're all driving stick, of course, so you tried to get up in first gear and it couldn't do it. And we were like, oh, shit, where do you go from first gear? <laughs> yeah, where do you go? Because the car engine's running out of oxygen. To yeah, yeah. So basically, the, instead, of, uh, instead of going, what we did was reverse back up the previous hill and then attack this other one at speed <laughs> in first gear. And then thankfully, we got over the other side. Unreal, unreal. And that's just physics. Like you had to put your heads together, your delirious, <laughs> yeah, delirious yeah. minds. Like, how do we solve this riddle? The, the car won't do it. And then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we kept going. And, and finally, we arrived in Horog, uh, sorry, in uh, Murgrab, which is um, on the border with, or, or a few miles short, but close to the border with China anyway. It's the last settlement. And um, it's a really basic place. Um, a lot of flat um, Soviet built concrete buildings people used to be nomadic up there and yeah uh, they much prefer to live in yurts and so on but the, the soviets built them all these buildings and then sort of told them they had to stay there because they needed to know where people were you know everything was about bureaucracy and um numbers and etc etc so Organ organization our way is is the, the is way. the only way yeah so we um and actually bizarrely as part of all this rally what we were doing was actually uh, some charitable work for Murgrob. So we had we had brought like two wheelchairs all that way and a lot of um, pens and paper and like things that would hopefully be useful for the local school. Unreal. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we we brought all that stuff and um, we spent the afternoon there. Um, actually, no, we overnighted there. The people were lovely, of course, absolutely astonished to see us. Uh, and then and then finally we we we, we turned back and, and started on the way back to to Dushanbe. Um. When we, our, our car had done really well, or our van had done unbelievably well. I was so sort of proud of it and its durability, indefatigability, that's what it had. And um, when one night we were driving and um, it, just Attila and I were awake and we had found a tape, a cassette tape in, in the car randomly. Oh, God. It had totally weirdly it had Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar original soundtrack <laughs> and by <laughs> and by mad coincidence Attila and I are both mad fans of that yeah. and, and know off by heart lots of the lyrics so so we were like singing having a fucking great time listening to this this mad funk gospel music yeah. and, uh, and then we heard this huge bang and some vital part of our, our dear Nissan Vanette had popped uh, and, and been destroyed. And we didn't know what it was, but it was definitely dead. Mm. And so we were then sitting around on this mountain pass, sort of at a loss of what to do. I think it was one o'clock in the morning and we were just like, well, fuck. Like we just have to hope somebody comes along here. Yeah, this is an unsealed dusty road on the side of a mountain. Yeah. And then un unbelievably the Miguel's turned up with their <laughs> and we were like, fuck yeah, it's these guys. So we were like, right, we need to get to the next village at least. And um, we're like, can the Passat tow the, the van? No way. No way. <laughs> but, but mostly because we didn't have a rope. And then one of the best ideas I've ever had in my life was we ha we're not using the seatbelts anyway in the back. So we took a knife to them and cut them all out the back and uh, made a tow rope out the, out the seatbelts because, you know, that's fairly hard wearing stuff. It worked, except the pressure was too much for the Passat and it nearly ripped one of the wheels off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had to repair the Passat 
And then all of us just squeeze into that. Thankfully, it was in the States, so it was a little bit bigger. Yeah. And we just left the poor vanette on, this, on the roadside in the middle of nowhere. And when we got to the next village, we just gave somebody the keys and said, there's a car there if you want it. Like, if you can get it working, it's yours. Um, that and, works out. That's pretty nice, actually. Probably yeah. In that part of yeah, the Yeah, no, I think they probably would. Those guys pretty... Um, you know, resourceful. I think they probably would have been able to get it fixed. If you would have had some red paint, you know, you really could have come up on the right side of <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. So we still had about 300 miles to go. And we, quite sadly and frustratingly for us, we had to finish it in a, in a taxi. Basically, we, we paid some villages to take us to Dushanbe. Oh. But we hadn't paid them enough for exclusive use of the vehicle. Oh, no. So, so we had to pick up another two guys. Uh, and I was sat in the back, like squeezed right next to uh, to this uh, little Tajik guy who uh, had yellowy sort of eyes and didn't really speak much English, but spoke a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he was asking me, you know, do, what do you think of Tajikistan? And I said, oh, I, I love it. Uh, you know, it's really nice, so beautiful. And uh, look at look outside, you know, I was trying to wave out the window and trying to, you know, emote what I was, what I was trying, the message I was trying to get across. Yeah. And I said, what do you, what do you do? And, um, you know, we're smashing over these potholes and he's like, I work for the Department of Transport. <laughs> <laughs> and he's getting a taxi over. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. No, so then, and then finally we finished in, uh, we finished in Dushanbe. Um, it was now a, a June of, um, of 2012 and the European football championships were on and, um, and yeah, I remember trying to watch the football and um, like I just, my mind was cracked with exhaustion. Like I was so, so tired. I was, I was, I've never been more tired in my life and I hope never to be that tired again. Um, but it was extraordinary. It was really, really extraordinary. The story is called Bangers and Cash, Driving in the Central Asia Rally. It's available at The Guardian online. You can still look it up. Yeah, I'm sure I can. Wait, cannot wait to read this. We're going to post this in the show notes because it's, it's, as incredible as this podcast was, I have a feeling that when you put your talents to the uh, pin pad and everything, it's going to be even better. Um, Jamie, last question I have for you before we wrap up here is you're driving through these really desolate parts of the world. And I think it's easy for people to imagine that humanity is only thriving, is only um, flourishing in, in big cities and developed countries. But here you are in the most middle of nowhere places ever. And yet there's still people. Hmm. What does that say to you about humanity? Um, you know, I think that in a way, the people there that, that we met seem to be quite content overall with, with their lot. And now it's hard to say why that might be. It might be because to them, the post-Soviet era is happier than it was, you know, in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It might be because they don't, they don't know any better. Um, you know, they, they're just not going to, they're not people who are able to travel or, or perhaps even, you know, interested in traveling at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the, a lot of the people there and, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, is that I'm, I'm trying not to make it sound like, oh, they don't have any ambition or, you know, I, I, I passed through those places. I just was, was seeing things out, out the window. I, it's, yeah. I, I wouldn't like to say anything too definitive about any of it, but, but the people there, um, Life seemed there wasn't there was definitely an element where it seemed like you know they were working with the land for the land and and to to look after their families, and they had a a nice and much healthier 
um, attitude towards travelers, basically. Sure. I mean, there was one time I remember very clearly in Uzbekistan in the middle of nowhere, really, really in the middle of nowhere, where Attila had just hit the brakes for a smoke again. <laughs> I just, like, fucking hell, like, can you not just wait? Nope, smoke time, stop. And we were stand, we, we parked at the side of the road, but, you know, it looked like potentially we had broken down. Yeah. And we, I would say 90% or more of the passing cars stopped and to see if we were in trouble. It's incredible because that would never and, happen in no. America and in Scotland. Well, they just assume you're in a TVR and it's broken. Yeah, yeah, or and 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 that you're on the phone to like some roadside service that's going to help you and blah blah blah. Yeah. And one of the some of the guys came along and be like, no, it's just so he can smoke. And they were like, well, even so, here's some water and some apricots. Like, you How know, incredible, we, really. Yeah, and I, so I think that the appreciation of the traveler mm-hmm. and this very old, um, you know pre-industrial age idea that you need to be nice to people on the road because inevitably you will be on the road at some point and you might need help when you're in the desert. You might need to be the one who needs water. That sort of people just checking that we were okay. Um, uh, it's even an if old probably, traveler's code, you know, I'll never turn down a traveler in need. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure they went back home and said, there's these mad white guys driving around. Like they said, they've come from Europe. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But but in the moment, everyone was, uh, apart from, you know, corrupt police officers, uh, of which there were many, admittedly, but the actual real locals, people in restaurants and stuff, I remember in, in, um, in the high, like 4,000 meters parts of, of Tajikistan, we went to one place and we were just like, can we get some bread, please? And this old grandma was like, absolutely not there's no way that you're just having bread and she insisted that we come into her house to have lunch that's amazing and then we tried to give her money absolutely not on no account would she take any money off us either jeez man yeah that that is incredible that's incredible i mean humanity from what i've learned as as a traveler is i feel like people are in general good and and to me it takes extenuating circumstances for most people to to cross that line yeah yeah and this is what you know when i started off i was saying that it wasn't a tourism thing a lot of my job nowadays is that i turn up somewhere and i follow an itinerary that is planned for me because i have to report it like that and so people are hospitable towards me but they have an agenda or they are contractually obliged to be hospitable to me what i will take away from the, the central asia rally is really two things one is I understand the new meaning. I, I continue to understand the new meaning of patience for having done that, you know, and, and what a long time is and how tired it's possible to be. All of that changed after being on the rally. But the other thing is what you said, you know, most people without outside influence and um, pressures of work or other things are fundamentally good. And that yeah. was a that was a great thing to learn. Incredible, incredible tale. Um, everybody give Jamie a follow on Instagram. Uh, travel underscore journal is on twitter too mega uh head hide h-e-i-d it's got to short for head heed heed that is true (laughs) but uh jamie's really fucking funny so one of my favorite followers i'm so glad we were able to connect um and i'm gonna link this story bangers and cash so uh it it looks really great you can get a vibe out there's images and stuff that, that jamie took so really cool and it does have that vibe of like old school travel journalism. So congrats on a great adventure. And I I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Thanks, Joe. Cheers. Thank you very much. 
The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. If you like today's episode, follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. Uh, give us a like, give us a rating, help us make some more episodes. You can always email feedback too to Joe at Sold Out Blog. Oh, <laughs>